Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. We're off. We're off. Yeah, I mean, I agree, but like, fucking, let's keep. Let's, yeah, fuck. I mean, <laughs> nothing is better than actually broadcasting our genuine thoughts on stuff, Nathaniel. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. I feel like I'm sort of a Mr. Miyagi character to you, and I'm t- I'm showing you the ropes. Is that how you do it on radio? You take a huge uh, glug of Pepsi Max cherry <laughs> as the clock ticks over into <laughs> well, the starting time. Is that the pros do it? Do you know what? Nah. Yeah. Um, I was just going to see how you reacted to it, and <laughs> it was great. You took over... Uh, uh, and uh, yeah, you nailed it. It was professional, slick. Thanks. Just what we've come to expect uh, from fan. Another club. fan club. Uh, fan club. Right, I haven't got any socks on. Um, <laughs> I'm going to try and find some socks uh, when we play a song in a bit. But apart from that, if I forget, remind me. Okay. Um, you're listening to Fan Club. It's a five-star family, fun-sized fan club. We've been um, uh, delivering you five-star entertainment since... 2018? 2018, for sure, right? For sure, but I was thinking for a second that it might be 2017, but it's 2000, 2018. 2018. But 2018. With a year of it, over a year of it, from our own homes... It does make me think, why would we ever leave our houses ever again? Yeah, it does. I actually think, like, uh, this pays into the, <coughs> the, the, what we're doing as well. I think it makes more sense that you're sat there with no socks on in your house and I'm in my washroom doing this show than it does that we're in a professional radio studio doing it. And in, in my head, I am in a professional radio studio. Right. Just happens to be... Uh, furled with shit. <laughs> um, and I just want to say, I I am wearing all the rest of my clothes. I just couldn't find any socks. Yeah, I think that was a given. That that's what you're looking for. That goes without if you saying. weren't wearing anything else, and you're worried about your socks, oh, I would think there might be an issue. Yeah, but then it might just be that I didn't want my feet touching the floor. Okay. I'm happy being completely naked, uh, but my floor is just damn filthy. So where are my socks? But I'm not. I'm wearing all my clothes, um, just not wearing socks. Um, and I'm probably going to find some socks. I'm actually a bit warm, if anything. Is it warm today? Who knows? I'm quite warm, and I've only got this shirt on. Well, we're going to run out of time again this week, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's no you can't you can't complain if we start off like this and then we rush uh, we, t- we do a three minute review of Suicide Squad, which is in the cinemas. Maybe it's not in the cinemas anymore. Um, yeah, this is fan club. First rule of fan club: tell your friends about tell fan your friends. Club. Second rule of fan club: tell your friends. Tell your friends. Uh, apparently, I'm told we are 120 in Singapore. I don't know if we've been in. Uh, it's the Singapore Apple Podcast chop- comedy charts. 120 in Singapore? 
Yes, thank sorry, you. Sorry, but that dick's all over 186 in Malta, right? <laughs> Lovely. That's Lovely. way that's way higher. Hello, everyone in Singapore, number 120 in the podcast. Um, wonder, Thanks for listening. I wonder whose episode that is. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder, I wonder how many people have sort of like been duped with uh, oh, Michael Jai White. Michael Jai White, Steve Bashaya, is that right? Steve Bashaya, big in Singapore. And uh, and then they've got like an hour of us talking, <laughs> and then it's like, oh God, when's a guest coming on? But it's more. It's, we do have a guest. We have a guest on every week, but it's so much more than a guest. If anything, they detract from. it's it's very much a show of two halves i think you've got yeah first half where which feels like the proper show to be honest and then the second half almost feels like a different show where it's me and you interviewing someone it's me it's me and you that have kind of like uh we're you know it's like uh we've uh, gone to uh a a barbecue wedding Mm mm-hmm and uh, we've gone for a fag round the side, and then uh, someone else has come over and started talking to us, and we've got to stop what we're talking about, and then suddenly be interested in them for a bit. Um, that's the show. That's how we've done it. We've got a great guest today, though, who won't be interrupting. And neither me or Nathaniel Smoke. Um, great guest. Got a great guest today. Great guest. But what have you been a fan? Of? Have we done all the bits that we? All I think the... we've done it all. I think we've we've raced through it at ten past two. I can't believe ten minutes. Oh no, but we've oh, only five, done five minutes. minutes. Five minutes because we started late. Remember, we did start late. We did start I, late. I've been a fan of rustlers this week. Um, I... Yeah, I was saying that I like the breakfast rustlers with the sort of sausage meat, but you prefer. The burgers, which you think are better than McDonald's own. It depends what you get. I mean, there's different rustlers. We get well. Don't you just get? Isn't there like regular chicken, which aren't great? I don't think the chicken one. The chicken burgers are fine. Any rustlers is great. Okay. Rustlers microwavable burgers are better than McDonald's burgers. There, I've said it. I've said it. And on top of just saying something, I mean it. I don't know that I'm man enough to do one of their double burgers, though. I think I've struggled to get through one. Well, just don't, only eat half. You're at home. No one's judging. Let's face it. You're in your pants <laughs> eating over a sink. <laughs> eat half a burger and bin it. No one is judging you. It's rustlers. <laughs> it's like... What if you retrieve the other half from the bin later? Who gives a fuck? No one cares. You can do that. That's actually the uh, ideal serving way to suggestion. Eat it. That's, that's the picture on top of the on, on the on the packet. Yeah, it's hard in one go. It's a bit much, but come back in an hour or two when you're hungry again. It's still at it's still at the bin. The picture, There's maybe a the picture on the front of a rustler's is half a burger, <laughs> and then in the background there's a morbidly obese man with his butt crack on display, <laughs> reaching into a bin to get the other half. <laughs> That's like, so, you know, with maybe a gherkin in it, and then there's a little asterisk saying, no gherkins. <laughs> You've got to provide your own gherkin, mate. And either you can, I mean, this is on you now, but either you can get the sliced gherkin. Mm-hmm. Or you get like an unsliced gherkin and slice it yourself, but yeah. then you end or up a with pickled a gherkin that you sort of just bite into, alternatively with having a bite of a burger. 
Yeah, I suppose that is a way of like uh, keeping your house clean. <laughs> um, but anyway, that's rustlers. If you've got like a jar of of pickle, yeah, then uh, and you've only got like one or two left, yeah, you save that liquor. I wonder if, or, if as a drink, you know, you just drink, you just guzzle it down. Imagine it. Just you wash down a rustlers with pickle juice. It's. Uh, <laughs> I is also that the think worst? is that the worst thing we've ever said? Um, <laughs> probably not, but it feels like it. I think they give me too much ketchup, which is a bad thing as well, because I know that I don't have to put it all on, but I feel like that's the correct amount because that's how much they're given me, and I usually squeeze it out onto my burger and go, well, "That's too much," and well, then I have a very saucy burger. The relish. You're talking about the relish that they give yeah. you. Yeah, it's too much. And also, it's not quite sweet enough. I think that you're better off with a Baxter's tomato chutney mm-hmm. uh, just on standby that you can use. Or maybe a tomato relish in a squeezable bottle. Mm. Also Baxter's, I suppose. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, one thing that is important about enjoying a wrestlers mm-hmm. is setting aside early on in your head that, Come on, this isn't uh, McDonald's. Right. It, it, it will never be a McDonald's. You can't make it a McDonald's. Mm-hmm. And when you appreciate wrestlers for what it is, then um, you'll you, you realise that it's superior. It surpasses okay. a McDonald's. Well, I've, I've had a McDonald's recently. I think we were uh, driving and we... St- we had to get I don't like as a rule don't like McDonald's. But we were driving and um had to get it and I found it very dry and tedious. But with the rustlers, every mouthful is a taste explosion. Maybe we could get rustlers on board as a, a as a sponsor. I, I think they'll um, like this advert. Uh, I'm not sure how well uh rustlers do on the radio. I think it's quite irritating for the listeners. It's true, yeah. If we were just eating a... rustlers live, no, because no, they're rustlers, you see. Oh, very good. A lot of rustling Got it. on the radio. Uh, sound the sound guy on the first series of Uncle and the third series of Uncle. Sound guy was called Russell. Very good. Couldn't uh, have done anything else. And he, uh, uh, and there was a guy that worked for him called Mike. And you can't make that up. You can. <laughs> you, you can. Very easily. Just have. <laughs> um, but <laughs> Russell, if you're listening, he's not. Uh, uh, hello. On the end credits of Seinfeld, there used to be an editor who would do a lot of the episodes whose name was Skip Collector. And I thought, that's a guy who's beaten nominative determinism. He's not at all become a Skip Collector. He's a well-respected editor in the sitcom television world. Well, a lot of uh, editing uh, is about going through uh, the bin ends that people have thrown away and saying, there's a good shot here. There's a better shot here than there was out of the ones that you selected. Yeah, well, he's probably such a good editor. So it's actually Skip Collector is, is like, it's like a, um, it's what he does do. There you go, couldn't beat it. He he did, but he he sort of like upgraded it. Yeah, I'm a sli- I'm a skip collector. That's like um, 
you know, I don't know, I was going to say the Queen of England. Is it uh, that way people um, upgrade their... They're, they're sort of proud of something that would be seen as a negative, a slur or something. And he goes, yeah, actually, that is what I am. Like old dirty bastard. Yes, exactly. And, you know, he's gone up the ranks. Yeah. And um, is he a rapper? Not as young as he once was. Yeah, he's in the Wu-Tang Clan. There you go. And he's now... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Sort of out of uh, imagination today. So that's that. What have you been a fan of this week? Well, I've seen I've seen a lot of stuff. Seen a lot of stuff. You I think this show is getting looser. <laughs> it has today. I think the last few weeks it's been barely a show. Well, isn't that that isn't that what it's meant to be like? I think the last few weeks it's been like we've been putting off the fact that we've actually got to do a show on air. <laughs> It'll be like our off-air chat. I find we normally of- get going about sort of about 25 minutes past we we go off we've got loads to say then the that's when the song kicks in yeah and when we go all right and then we have to pack in loads more into the final half hour and do fan mail um but yeah it's sort of it's warming up isn't it i'll tell you what i saw this week i don't know if i was such a fan of it but i, I think it's ambitious is the film Southland Tales. Have you ever seen oh that? Oh, my God. Have you ever seen that? Oh, my God. I've not seen Southland Tales. I own it on TV. Is there a director's cut of Southland Tales? Or is it yeah, I believe so. I believe that I've watched what I think is the director's cut, I think. So what's the name of the director? The director is at home. Before, is it, is it, it's Richard what? Mm-hmm. It's Kelly. Richard Kelly. And Yes, right. Richard Kelly. He directed Donnie Darko. Yeah, uh, which was a huge cult hit. It, it was all right at the cinema, but then it it really. I remember I was. I went. I remember when I went to see Donnie Darko. I graduated, and I was visiting my friend up at Edinburgh University, and him and all of his housemates went to see Donnie Darko, and they all came out of it. They were all students, and I wasn't a student anymore. And they all came out of it like it was this mind-blowing experience where it's like life-expanding, mind-expanding. And I came out of it going, "What's that about?" And I realised just then that I, like, I'm not, I'm not a student. This isn't. This film wasn't made for me. And so, Tony Darko. I like bits of Tony Darko, but I just found it kind of like um, a little bit. Um, I like I like it's the same with The Shining I suppose but I don't think it's as good as The Shining obviously but like I think I like my film spelt out a little bit more but then also um, I like intellectual films but I I, I just I, there's a difference between bringing your own interpretation to something and feeling like the director has missed something out <laughs> you know and also it was it had the song Mad World. Yeah, I wasn't really a fan of that. But then Richard Kelly was like, right. And then Donnie Darko became enough of a hit that he managed to go back and do a director's cut of it. Yes. Which is famously much less good than the original version. It really is. And over explains the movie. And off of, and which was a warning of things to come. I think maybe he released the director's cut after Southland Tales. So his follow up to Donnie Darko was Southland Tales, which stars Sean William Scott. 
Dwayne the Rock Johnson, uh, Justin Timberlake, Justin Timberlake, um, Sarah Michelle Gellar. Uh, it stars so many people that have gone on to uh, Christoph Lambert, Christoph Lambert, John Lovitz, Amy oh. Poehler, right, Kevin Smith, all pop up in it. Um, they, they've all gone on to do better things, except for maybe Sean William Scott, who yeah. was like at his peak. Yeah. And actually, where uh, you know, where is he? Yeah, it's funny because he's kind of the main character. Well, there's probably three or four maybe main characters. And it's weird to see it now because it feels like a much bigger film because of the people in it. And yet I remember it was kind of none of these people were big stars at all. Maybe the biggest star in it was Justin Timberlake but as a pop he, star. You know, Yeah, yeah. It, it was like one of his first acting gigs or something. Mm. Um, yeah, I've, I've, I've never seen it. I've got it on DVD somewhere and I just know that it is meant to be an incredible like, ball ache to get through. And I've kind of put it off for that. But go on, tell I, us. I, I really like Donnie Darko when it came out. And then almost immediately, I didn't see it again, and it started, it didn't sit well with me in my head, like, oh, I bet that's not going to work. I bet that's not very good. And so I didn't really watch it again. Didn't really what, revisit Tony Darko? Yeah, didn't really revisit it. Then a few years ago, I decided to revisit it, and I was like, oh, I'm actually completely wrong. I still think it's great. Mm. And partly, partly the thing of not revisiting it was just this idea that I got the impression that everything else he'd done was no good. And then I started hearing lots of people saying how good Southland Tales was. And I was going, is it really? Is it really? And you watch it, and it isn't. But it's very ambitious. It's sort of like it's almost... You kind of slightly appreciate what they're trying to do, but it's a total failure. It's like... And and I was thinking of it like satire, like film satire is what it's trying to do. I think it's probably set... I think it's set in 2008, but came out in 2005 or 2006. When did Johnny Darker come out? 2004, 2003? No, like 99. No. That's not Wasn't true. Wasn't it? it? I know it came out a year later than it did in the States. It was out for a year in the States, but we got it like a, a whole year later. And apparently... 2001. It didn't... Fucking 2001. 2001. Oh, so I so guess I 2002 over here. 2002, and I reckon it came out in uh, winter. So I would have... I graduated summer 2002, and I would have seen it... Um. Yeah, all right. I'd have seen it at, um, uh, like, November time up in Edinburgh. Um, but, yeah, I, I really like Donnie Darker. And then when I was sort of looking into it, a lot of people were saying that maybe this guy, Richard Kelly, who was a bit of a wunderkind at the time, this sort of young director, I think a lot of people were saying, well, I think a lot of the, about the way it looks and things is this sort of cinematographer they had. And I think there's been sort of questioning how much he had to do with it, especially as when he was allowed, yeah, to recut it. I can't Everyone stand was it. like, it's much worse. I can't stand it when people do that. I think it's abs- it, people people that talk about it being the cinematographer rather than the director um, just misunderstand film direction. Or f- they misunderstand filmmaking. You know, um, it's like they, it's like George Lucas's wife re-edited Star Wars and is sort of responsible for um the structure and how it came out at the end and people use that as a thing to say well George Lucas isn't actually good because um 
he didn't really. His version of Star Wars, with all of the footage that he filmed, was uh, he couldn't make it work, and then he got an editor to do it. He go, that's what an editor does. <laughs> that's literally. It's not so much that George Lucas isn't a great director, wasn't a great director and a visionary. It's the fact that you've misunderstood what an editor is your whole life, and now someone has put it into a context that you understand. Mm. That's what an editor does. And they are responsible for the look of and structure of a film. Yeah, you're right. In the, that'd be the same as saying Star Wars wouldn't be as good as it didn't have John Williams's soundtrack. And you go, yeah, it's true. It absolutely it was added. It would, it's added to it. <laughs> and do you know who was in charge of all of that? It was George Lucas. Was it George Lucas? He was like, he was the one that went, Fucking hell, I've done all this footage and it's rubbish. How? Oh, God, I've directed <laughs> this film. No one, had, like, no one had any faith in it. And he's like, I've made this film and it's shit. It's absolutely shit. And he showed all of his mates. He showed Spielberg and De Palma and Coppola. And, you know, he showed, he showed all, uh, Martin Scorsese and he showed all of them. And they were all like, this is shit, George. And he was like, I know. And then he was like, oh, well, what if my wife can... <laughs> have a go at it and she did and he went oh that's it it's much better what you know and that's what being a director is it's taking you know he didn't make the costumes he didn't he didn't set the camera up everywhere and feel, you know it's like I've, if you've got any questions ask George you know it's it's I think anyway um so I read it's just off to a side uh a side point to that I read an interview recently with Brian De Palma where he was talking about that famous story about them all uh, uh, watching Star Wars. And he goes, yeah, Steven Spielberg always says that uh, me and Martin Scorsese were slagging it off. And it, it, his point is, he goes, no, I thought it was quite good. And it wasn't like it glowing. It was just that he was like, no, I thought it was quite good when I watched it. Yeah, I thought it was quite good. I didn't hate Star Wars at all. I thought it was all right. Yeah, fair it's like, it's like, what do you think about it? It's the, what do you think about it, Department? He's like, yeah, it's all right. enjoyed it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, um, and um, that's not like a thing about a rant about Star Wars. That's like just about stuff in general. It's like there are mm. people like James Cameron and Stanley Kubrick and you know uh, Alfred Hitchcock, and they are like authors where, um, but I uh, where it's kind of single-minded filmmaking, and it's a lot of ego involved in all of that. And I think there's ego involved in most things. So mm. I'm not saying it, things are egoless, but I'm just saying that really those are exceptions. And they're probably the easiest way to sort of like explain to someone, what is a film director? And then you show James Cameron injecting himself with adrenaline on the set of Titanic while he's punching a cameraman in the face and taking his camera off of him and saying, this is how you do it. And then wearing Kate Winslet's dress and saying, this is how you wear it. And, you know, that's kind of like what the stereotypical director is. But really it's someone that it is, it's really it's someone that um, encourages every department to do their very best. Mm. And any everyone, every department might be on a different page. And it's the director's job to get everyone on the same page and make mm. the same film. You know, I, you know, as I will do, I also often fantasize about the idea of making a film. And yet, whenever I think about it, I find the idea of it so incredibly stressful being a director that it almost makes me kind of uh, puts me off. And then when I always watch those, um, 
little documentaries and things that Robert Rodriguez makes. And I go, he doesn't seem to have any kind of fear of it. He just seems to be like, he almost does it like improv his films. It's got this sort of, he's got such a kind of lightness of touch. He's so kind of easy with himself on it. That I, it's just almost like it's like who else is like that? He just seems so unstressed by the process. His film sets seem really confusing because like he always does like a ten minute um, film school at the end, mm. but like also he does like a, a cooking school where he teaches you how to cook. Yeah, yeah. And it's like he sort of does the catering on his own sets. Yeah. <laughs> when does he have time to do that? <laughs> when does he have time to do that? He doesn't have time to do the catering on his own sets. <laughs> Like, you're filming up until lunch, then food has to be ready so that people can eat. <laughs> Everyone has, like, an hour, and then you're back filming again. He's not fucking cooking on sets, is he? <laughs> how was how does that even work, Robert? But I, I think... do wonder that. Like I do, And I do think over the years, which I suspect is true, and not to sort of criticise him, but I wonder if he has built up that by having this sort of studio and employing this many people... And even though he's got his finger in lots of pies, I wonder how much he is. Um, other people are kind of doing a lot of it as well. You know, he's doing a kind of he's there. He's almost like um, like a, an overseer of it all. He's kind of got his finger in it. And it, and I think that's reflected in a lot of his credits where sometimes he's sometimes he's credited as a director. But like after Sin City, it feels like often you see things and it's like he's directed it with someone else or he's involved or he's well, on set, but he's not. You've got to understand that his catering company really took off and <laughs> he had less time to spend directing the films. Yeah, yeah. He got a couple like, of weddings. Oh, we've got, oh, do you know what? We've got lunch coming up. I'm going to have to leave the set at 11 because I've got to prepare <laughs> for 150 crew members. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, don't get me wrong. A director is there all day. They get their first thing in the morning. They're there all day. They're making hundreds and hundreds of decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very stressful and difficult Yeah, to turn around at the end of all of that and say, yeah, but you didn't edit it. Yeah. It's like, that's literally not his job. <laughs> it's his job to oversee the edit and be in the edit, maybe, if he's contractually obligated to. But his job is to get the footage together, and then it's the editor's job to make sense of it with guidance a lot of the time. But sometimes, I don't know, it's like, I don't know, people have an unrealistic expectation. Anyway, Richard Kelly... Mm-hmm. Oh well, a lot of Donnie Darko might be down to the, the fact that the the um, the cinematographer. Yeah, you can have like this beautiful film that makes zero sense and is just full of shit. And I think it's something like when you have it's when you have someone like Ridley Scott and George Lucas that comes back to um, re- reevaluate their past work. Mm. And they make such a, uh, <laughs> um, they'll make such a shit uh, go at it that you kind of like brings into question. I would say it's not the fact that George Lucas didn't edit Star Wars that makes me think that he's not like the genius. It's the special editions and the prequels. Mm. Do you know I what I mean? I suppose as well that they're not. When they're revisiting it, they're revisiting these things often like fifteen years later or something. And it's you're not the same person anymore. So it's like you're kind of putting a 
square peg into a round hole or something. It's like you are making different decisions than you would have made as a 25-year-old or whatever because you're older. Well, yeah, and it's like um, Han Solo, uh, you know, shooting first and then him. Um, Han Solo kills Greedo uh, and then he leaves because he's a gunslinger and he's based on, like, Clint Eastwood. Great. And then later he's got kids and he's like, I, mean, I don't want to make Han Solo like a murderer, though. Hmm. Yeah, but he's based on a trope. He's based on yeah. the gunslinger. You know, even flips some money on his way out of the saloon. He's a gun. He's, he's Clint Eastwood in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. But also, he's not. He's not necessarily the whole point of him to have that story arc is that he's not fully a good guy. He's basically a good guy. But but Greedo is like even though he, we've now seen him in episode one as a little kid who's running around, but like he's not a good guy who gets killed. He's like a bit of a villain who's basically he's grassed him up. He's, he's a bad, he's a yeah, bad he's a guy, and the bad guy gets gets uh, shot, and it's not like no one is leaving that scene traumatized, thinking he's just murdered him. <laughs> They're like going, this is a bit of fun. And maybe that was George Lucas's point. Probably don't make a piece of family entertainment called Wars. <laughs> right? So it's sort of like, you've got that. And then you've got Ridley Scott, who, uh, you know, he made Alien. And when he did the director's cut of Alien, it was shorter and it used alter, alternate takes. And I think his director's cut of Alien is brilliant because it's a really great companion piece that you can watch side by side to the original. Mm. And it's, it's great that it's shorter, you know. But when you see Prometheus and he revisits the... And, you know, it's like he didn't understand what made Alien great because now you're explaining all the stuff that didn't need explaining. And, and that's kind of like... It's not whether they edit it or not. It's whether they... It's like George uh, Steven Spielberg came back and was like, "Oh, I'm going to do a CGI shark in Jaws," when George Lucas was doing all the Star Wars stuff, and then he saw the Star Wars stuff, and then Steven Spielberg said, "You know what? Jaws is fine," and it is. You don't need to add anything to that. Hmm. And and the, the, Jaws is so good that I still don't really understand how fake the shark looks. Yeah, I don't think it does. I think it's that they've got. I think you're dealing with a problem on set, and or in the editing room where you're watching uh, something that maybe on set they're a bit like, ah, oh, it looks terrible. So they're doing quick cuts all the time, so you see it for a second. It tricks the eye, and it totally works. There's not, there's none of nothing I'm, in Jaws that I go, ah, oh, that looks terrible. I haven't got that much experience with twenty-five foot great white sharks. <laughs> yeah, and I haven't seen enough of them for me to look at that and go, that is rubber. It's like I'd say. It's not that far. Do you know what I mean? It's like mm. maybe the shape of its nose is wrong. When you see it intercut with the actual footage of sharks in the film, the real sharks are a bit jarring because you go, well, they don't know anything like the fake shark. Just make it look like the fake shark. Uh, yeah, we've got to play, play We'll play a song now and then, um, <laughs> and then, and then we'll, we'll come back with some more urgent chat. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Foo Bar Radio. Don't push me, Nathaniel. I've just had enough of it. All right? Whatever your opinions are, you can keep them to yourselves unless I ask specifically for them. And we're back. We're back. Hello. And you're listening to fan club. And Nathaniel. Yes. Um, what, what were your opinions? Huh? I was. I on was. Southland Tales. I thought. 
it was it felt ambitious like i thought it was really because he's it's almost like he hasn't got the budget to pull off what he's trying to do and yet it does feel big it feels like a big movie he's trying to make this huge movie and it's a satire and i was thinking i don't know if these like uh you know near future satire movies ever really work they're always slightly too ambitious and a bit too like i don't know i was trying to compare it with something but it all just feels a bit like it's too big do you know what i mean it feels like it tonally it's nothing like donnie darko it's like a big old um it, it, i don't know it's very over the top Is and it everything's a, a bit yeah yeah sort of comedy satire i guess but it's also he's also trying to do stuff in it that's like and that guy's in time and this guy's got a doppelganger and this guy and it's like what pick one pick yeah, one right, right. go with it it's all a bit like he sort of got this idea which is one thing and i don't think it'd be a great movie anyway but it's like he can't help but his brain's constantly going but what if it was back in time and what if and it's like no 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 pick that at the start pick that before you start the film what's it about it's a bit like that it's it's, it's like he's too distracted it's like he's got so many ideas in that way that donnie darko's got like a big central idea and a sort of like what's happening in this and then there's like a payoff where you go all right i get it i get how it fits together Um, but like this is like that but where you're you're still going what what and they're like contradictory almost didn't he direct well the problem with the follow-up to something like donnie darko is you've done donnie darko and everyone has told you you're a genius Mm. so then you're like oh i'm a genius and so then you've gone well, I've got about nine ideas. But yes. what if I just do one draft where I combine them all? And I'm yeah. a genius. So this is what and then you do it. And then you go, I'm going to re-edit Donnie Darko. And then you realise, oh, maybe I'm not a genius. Oh, God, maybe it's like a team effort and we were all in it together. Um, or not. I don't know. I wasn't there. I don't have any strong opinions on it. And I've not seen Southland <laughs> Tales. I might love it. I like lots of films that people hate. And lots. I hate lots of films that people like. But... Um, um, did he not direct another film? I think he's Cameron Diaz. Yeah, was it called, was it The Box? Was that him? Because right. that's famous, isn't it? Because of the clip where they've just spent two years making this movie and there's a big twist in it and they're at a press conference and Cameron Diaz sort of, without thinking, just tells a huge room full of international press the twist <laughs> while she's just chatting and she does it and you can see his face as she's doing it and he's like going that's you've just told him the f- <laughs> <laughs> he's like how did how did you how did you not know not to say that like and you can just see his face he's like enjoying it and then all of a sudden he stops smiling and he's like horrified that the lead in his film <laughs> has ruined the film. Um, and that's a weird thing, isn't it? Because that the box, I think, is like a Richard Matheson book. So the ending is kind of in the public domain. But yeah, you shouldn't do it at a press conference. I guess you can kind of do a, a thing like that. I was always surprised that when the Kenneth Branagh Murder in the Orient Express came out, I remember always thinking, does anyone not know who the murderer is? Because they've done so many different versions, and I, I was did. surprised that yeah, that was it. I was talking to people going, "Do you know?" Like just as a like, and I think I might even put it on Twitter or something. I said, without saying what it is, who here knows who the murderer is? And I was thinking it's so it's been done so many times that I was going, surely now 
you can't keep making this. But every time, everyone's like, no, I have no idea. I'm probably more familiar with Agatha Christie-inspired films yeah. than I am with Agatha Christie films. Yeah. You know, and, and if I, but if I have like so the ones that they they did one that was set on an island in a house a couple of years ago that was star studded yeah. wasn't and Charles there were none. It? and then there were none and um and that's sort of it's not an obscure one but it's kind of like I'll watch like a TV adaptation or something like that I don't go back and watch Peter Ustinov and also Poirot was kind of like done to death on the TV show. Mm. So I've never, and it all felt like a bit ITV, so I never really watched it. Right. So I know who Agatha Christie is, and I like the idea of Agatha Christie novels, and mm-hmm. Agatha Christie has touched us all in a way, but uh, mainly through osmosis rather than direct yeah. contact. Well, I think that's it, right? It's just because I, and I just thought that one is such a kind of, the who done it is like a big who done it, and you go, uh, okay, that's like it's almost the reveal. I guess if you're her and all your books are whodunits, you have to come up with different whodunits. You have to come up with different, almost like how is it going to be different from all my other whodunits? So I yeah. thought that one was like a kind of this is people know this one, though, right? But I guess not. People didn't. And well, no. did it. I think most and, people are like, I've got no idea. And I don't know anything about Death on the Nile either. But that's the sequel, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So isn't it Albert Finney played? Albert Finney's, yeah, the, the Murder on the Orient Express, Poirot, and the sequel, the two sequels well, used came after it were used enough. Right. But they've all got quite star-studded cast in them. Yeah, that's what enough... I love about them. And, and really what Kenneth Branagh was doing was doing like a throwback to star-studded yeah. casts. Yeah, it's like a remake of the 70s um, Murder on the Orient Express, really. So it's great. trying to do that with like modern, you know, and that's why they work really. It's because you've got all these characters. You're essentially got Pyro plus an ensemble, so yeah. you might as well get big stars to play everyone. Yeah, and who should you get to play Pyro? Well, I'll play Pyro. Yeah, <laughs> great. Okay, cool. I um, like that movie. I liked it. Um, I thought it was. I thought it was fine. I, I think yeah. I probably would have rather watched like a two-part tv adaptation really <laughs> um i liked all the neon that they put in all the advertising and stuff made it look funky but um it wasn't in the film was it it was just <laughs> it was kind of classic um i can't remember it that well uh, right okay so at the cinema um cinemas are back baby Mm-hmm. I've seen three films in the, in cinema. Not this week. I saw Suicide Squad last week. The Suicide Squad I saw last week, yeah. which we didn't talk about that much. And I've also seen Old, M. Night oh, yes. Shyamalan's Old, yeah. and Free Guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How so is Free Guy? Have, have you seen either of those? I've not seen Old or Free Guy. You've not seen Old or Free Guy? No. Well, what have you seen then? I've seen The Suicide Squad. Uh, I saw the last film I think I saw before that was The Sparks Brothers, which I thought was great. Of course, is that Edgar Wright? Edgar Wright directed a documentary about Sparks. Yeah, I think it's one of the best Edgar Wright films. I think it's great. Really good. I think everyone would like it. I think you would like it. I think I would like it. Yeah, Mm. I'm... I'm, uh, I like like Edgar Wright, and I like... Mm. um, sparks what i know of them mm. and um yeah i i am all ears i'm all that. in baby i'm all in and i'm really looking forward to edgar wright's next film 
uh, what was it last night in soho yeah which looks incredible yeah really but, like the sound of that. what we have seen is okay so what i saw was the suicide squad uh that's doing really badly at the box office which is a real shame because it t- totally deserves a follow-up mm. and it's dc I really love Justice League, Zack Snyder's Justice League. I loved it, but it's a four-hour film, and every time I think about re-watching it, I think, fuck me, it's four hours. I'm probably it's a commitment. Haven't, haven't got time to watch it today. Uh, and I liked Wonder Woman when I saw it at the cinema, but I've watched it again, and I'm kind of like, yeah, I don't ever really need to see this again. I like it. And you don't need to, because they'll just do sequels, and it's like, fine. Um, and then what's the other one I liked? Uh, Joker. I liked the Joker. I thought mm-hmm. it was an interesting alternate take and it was quite an unpleasant film but i quite liked the unpleasantness Mm. and it's about the joker who is the most famous villain in the Mm -hmm. whole of fiction of literature he's probably he's probably as famous as dracula by now and probably more people were aware of him there Mm. you go so i thought the joker was a, a was a valid a valid you know a valid film and um and i enjoyed it uh because it was so unpleasant i think Mm. um and then the suicide squad came along and i was like great this seems like a film that isn't trying to be anything other than what it is which is an entertaining comic book movie comic books are fucking violent they Mm. really are and the fact that they've made this film which is as violent as a comic book and funny and heartfelt and emotional with great characters great cast everything like that it's brilliant and it's exact you know joker is trying to be something that it isn't Mm -hmm. and justice you know joker is trying to be kind of like um a a 1970s movie Mm -hmm. right joker's trying to be a scorsese movie taxi driver whatever king of comedy so it's 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 like going well we're a comic book. It don't feel like it's as ashamed as um, the Dark Knight trilogy of being associated with comic books, you know. But I also feel like they're trying to do something mature. They're taking a comic book and they're trying to do something different with it. So let's do some worthy filmmaking. Let's try and get some Oscars, whatever. Um, uh, Wonder Woman was kind of like, yeah, we're trying to do kind of like a throwback kind of Superman movie. Great. Um, uh, Justice League is like, this is a four-hour mini-series, basically, that you watch all in one go. And if they just made... If they had the time, money, and energy to keep making stuff like that, I guess that that would be great. But I don't really... It's sort of like... it. It's not disposable entertainment. It feels like not only the running time where you have to take a day off work to do it, but also (laughs) emotionally you put so much into that film. You're exhausted by the end of it. And it's, it's really, you know, um, prestige filmmaking, but it's, again, it's like, it's taking years and years of comic books and it's making, this is the movie that we're taking from all of this um, source material. Whereas Suicide Squad feels like oh, it's a comic book. Mm-hmm. You've picked up a comic book from a comic shop and you read it and that's the Suicide Squad. And it's prob- based. it's not ashamed to be what it is, mm-hmm. 
and it's based on its source material, based on um, its running time and its entertainment value. And, you know, it's not trying to be anything more than what it is, which is it's basically the best comic book movie ever made. <laughs> it's brilliant. It, it's it, it was it was just really really interesting. Seen it once, I'm sure. <laughs> I'll have different opinions when I see it again. But I just really loved it. I thought it was great. I really liked the film. I thought it was, but also by far, like after three goes, it's another one where it's like, yeah, that's what Harley Quinn's like. You've just sort of nailed it. And so the bits, I mean, I think there's bits in the film like that where she's basically having her own adventure that feel like, oh right, that's obviously Margot Robbie. It's almost like she's too big to be a little part of the gang now. But it, felt, it felt kind of weird, Margaret. It felt kind of weird Harley Quinn being included in the Suicide Squad anyway. Yes, it did. Like uh, in the first one. Yeah. The uh, fact that she was like the breakout star of that made total sense hmm. because Harley Quinn is one of the most beloved characters and it would have made much more sense to introduce her in... Um, it's, it's kind of weird. It's like you can have a Harley Quinn film without the Joker. Hmm. And you can have a Joker, for, but you shouldn't be able to. Mm. Yeah. Because she's the Joker's girlfriend, mm. right? For a long patch, you know? But they've sort of, like, jumped that. They've jumped the whole... Um, and it's it's sort of difficult to imagine the Joker with a girlfriend. Do you know what I mean? So it's mm. just like... So it's sort of like this weird thing where Harley Quinn is the Joker's girlfriend, but, but she's past all of that, and we're never mm. going to cover all of that. That's just sort of like something that we'll hint at or flashback to. And now it's kind of like there's this character that's too big for the Joker, too big for the Suicide Squad, too big for... I mean, even her movie was a Birds of Prey movie. Mm. Um, was it Birds of Prey? It was Birds yeah, of Prey. Yeah. What was the other one that it could have been? Gotham... Uh, Gotham City Sirens, was it? So it was either going to be that or it's going to be Birds of Prey, and so they made a Birds of Prey. But it's like, it's a Harley Quinn film. Oh, it's just, it's it's really weird the way they've handled that character. So to have her in the Suicide Squad feels a little bit like, well, we've got to include her. She was the best thing about the first one. But also they've kind of like put her on her own side mission where, and I think her interaction with seeing, seeing parts of the film through her eyes makes you appreciate characters from the original more. Oh, I, I just think they've done it right. And it's just like they've sort of nailed the character on the third go. And you go, right, yeah, that's what that's how you do it. And mm. I think it's just that I think presumably James Gunn just has a better understanding of who these characters were before their film versions. And so just does like, shouldn't they be more like this? And then is just does it does a different version of it that's slightly just just far far superior and it's maybe. like yeah they should always be like this maybe but i think it's because most people come along to a property and they go how can i make it mine and how can i make it edgy and how can i make it different and how can i put my stamp on it and make it different from the from the source mm. material and what he's done is he sort of embraced it mm. he's not like done a direct adaptation but he's kind of like um he's He's fixed stuff and, you know, and he's gone, right, this is for film. But he hasn't gone, yeah, but what if he didn't wear tights and uh, and everything was real, you know? Mm. And what if it's really, like, gloomy and depressing and it's sort of, it's really kind of, it's uh, trying to understand the psychology of how all of these bad guys, and you kind of go, yeah, sure, but, but aren't you sort of like missing the point? Uh, that was it. You just go to this film and 
it was really fun and it still yeah. had room for a little bit of worthiness and a little bit of uh, pulling at your heartstrings. And mm. uh, yeah, and you just end up just, they're bad guys, but you really care for them. And um, it's exactly what the first film should, it's, you know, um, it's what it should be. But the reason it's not doing well at the cinema is because Free Guy is out, mm-hmm. which is a more family sort of orientated thing. It's Disney starring um ryan reynolds um i didn't understand any of it (laughs) It doesn't overly appeal to me i i I thought when you watch the trailer the trailer looks like it's like groundhog day um where it's a guy that lives the same day over and over again he's like the background character of a computer game like grand theft auto um and so he wakes up and he lives every day the same every day and then one day he veers off of his programming and he starts experiencing the whole... So it's a bit like Truman Show as well, right? Mm. He, and you go, right, I get that. Yeah. The way they've set the film up, it's so baffling and confusing that you're just like, why are you telling this story like this? Like, uh, he's not like this boring kind of like... Um, uh, background character he's sort of like this really fun expressive character that it's just this, this really weird way that he's to, that they've told the story and it's kind of like uh and, and then and then there's kind of like a moment when he realizes that he is a computer game character which i don't think is a spoiler that's what this sort of genre is he realizes he's a computer game character and he gets very emotional and upset about it but then it's like it comes out of nowhere, and I think it could have been integrated into the film. I don't want to get like, to, you haven't seen it, but it's just like, I just found it baffling that you go, we've seen this film several times before. Yeah. And it's sort of trying to be kind of like a modernised Frank Capra type film. Well, weirdly, when you're describing it then, I've seen trailers for it and things, and I've got an idea of what it is in my head, but you describing what it was then was the first time I went, oh, right. I can see that film, but even from the trailers, I didn't really get what I was, what it was about. And I feel like what you were just saying is much more like, oh yeah, that's a good idea for a film. I think that's how you would tell the film. But the fact is they're computer game characters, but they're not like pixelated. They're all just like, it's Ryan Reynolds in, in a practical, they're all practical sets with practical, there's no sort of like, there's huge explosions and car chases that are happening outside all the windows, but it's as if it's like, the real world it's not like visibly obvious it's a computer game and then it cuts to the real world where there are real actors in the real world and there's not that much difference between the real world and the computer game world and it's kind of like why haven't you made more of a difference and why do we need to cut between the real world and and the storyline that you've created to actually be the engine that makes this film run along isn't that interesting so wouldn't it be better if you introduced the fact that we were either start the film where you go we're in a computer game and and uh and then it's about this guy realizing it's a computer game or start the film where we don't realize it's a computer game and we're thinking what is this world and then all of a sudden one day he realizes he's living in a game and at first he's sort of heartbroken because he goes oh my whole life is a game and then he realizes oh but i can make this play to my advantage and I can do whatever I want. And, you know, and then he kind of, you know, that's how I, 
but that's not how the story goes. It's like they miss a load of stages. They go for like Ryan Reynolds going around to exploding stuff and jumping off of buildings and stuff like that. And then they go backwards and then they do some of like the more emotional groundwork and it jumps. Around. I just couldn't fucking, I, I, I didn't not enjoy. Well, I don't, I didn't, I don't think it's a, Hmm. It's I, it, uh, hmm. it didn't connect with me on almost any level. And then I left. But I imagine, but people seem to be really up for it. Yeah, I've really seen a lot it. of good word about it. It doesn't overly appeal to me as an idea. I just feel like maybe if I was 20 and I'd grown up on Grand Theft Auto, yeah, this would I be my movie. Yeah, yeah. But I am aware of what all that stuff is, and it still didn't really connect to me. The other film I saw was Old, which is M. Night Shyamalan's new film. And you haven't seen that either? No. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's... I've heard some things about it, yes. Well, I mean, holy fucking hell. <laughs> it's like, why would you tell that story this way? Again, you go, it's about a group of holidaymakers that find themselves on a deserted beach, and every time they try and escape, they get uh, paralysing headaches, and with each hour that passes, two decades go by. Right or two years go by, so I think it's a year and a half. Every half hour is a year, and it's like so they're just getting older and older and older. And you, it's like a Twilight Zone episode. Wonder how the master of suspense and Night Shyamalan's <laughs> going to handle that. And then you watch it and you go, "Oh my god, not like this! What? It's just like it's baffling to think this is such a good set. It's a good premise. I'm I'm on board. Let me, you know, it might not be my favourite movie of all time. Might not be the most important movie of all time, but it will certainly kill an hour and a half. Let's watch it. And then you watch it and it's like, why? <laughs> why this? Um, whereas Suicide Squad is like, yeah, per, uh, for what it is, it's perfect. Right. Fan mail. Fan mail. See, we've run out of time again. I know. It's because you're blithering at the beginning. <laughs> Hi, Nick and Nat. Hi, Nick and Nat. How are you lovely boys? Fine, I've recently you. watched The Iron Lady with Meryl Streep and I was shocked because I've never realised how much she looked like Margaret Thatcher. I don't know uh, much about Thatcher because I was born in 99, but it seemed like a fairly good movie to me. What do you think? Have you watched it? Cheers, Holly. No, I haven't watched it. I don't think she looks particularly like Margaret Thatcher. I think it's probably the performance that has probably made you think that. I think when people do that stuff well, they start to look like them through the performance more. I think what's interesting about The Iron Lady and also uh, Gillian Anderson in The Crown Mm. is that when you see them play Margaret Thatcher, it really highlights how fucking mental Margaret Thatcher's hair was. Yes, yeah, it does. You You see Margaret Thatcher's hair on other people and you go, wow. Because she, she really made that look work for her in a way that it doesn't look right on anyone else. <laughs> That's what I've got to say about that. <laughs> hey, fellas, I've started to get into Bollywood films. Do you like Bollywood productions too? Have you got any good Bollywood films to suggest? Thanks, Martin. Uh, it's a huge gap in my uh, uh, knowledge. Viewing. Yeah, I don't know a lot. I once um, saw one being filmed in... Uh in Leicester Square, like a, a bit of it that was obviously little scenes around London. <clears throat> and afterwards, I was always kind of... I, I kind of wanted to know what it was. Uh, but I don't have that knowledge. 
I went to see some Bollywood films when I was at university, uh, and I think I saw the most expensive Bollywood science fiction film that had ever been made, which did look fairly low budget. What would have been great, Martin, is because uh, it is a quite a niche. We've never mentioned Bollywood films on mm. this show. Um, would have been to have suggested a few Bollywood films for us to get started on. That would have been great, but you've failed, Martin. <laughs> you've literally just sort of like challenged. Uh, it's not a challenge, but you know. You've thrown down a gauntlet, but you've not left any gloves. <laughs> uh, we should get our guest on. We've we got one do. more. Uh, the Spanish Princessy, but I can't find any new historical series like that. Have you got any suggestions? No, I don't really watch historical TV shows, Toby. No, I don't, especially. Uh, no brackets this week for Christopher. Let's uh, play a song and get a guest on. <laughs> okay. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. Back, we're back live. We're not live, we're as live. Um, uh, in the studio, we're not in the studio, I'm in my uh office, and Nat is in his washroom. Uh, and we're joined now uh, by uh, actor, comedian, and uh, well, he's already written a book. This is his first novel, uh, writer Miles Chup. Hello, Miles, how are Hi. you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm very well. I've, I, I've just recovered from having a uh, overnap. Oh, it's awful, isn't it? I was thinking that this morning. I got up too early this morning and I was having a debate with myself that is it actually better to get up too early and be tired than have one of those over naps where it ruins the rest of your day? I think it's surprisingly... I don't know why it works like that, is it? Because you fall into a kind of slight abyss if, you're, if, you, if, you, if you nap for too long. If you hit snooze maybe three times, I think that's awful. Mm. Right today, yeah. I, I, so anyway, I'm, I'm recovering now from that. What do you mean? I oh, sorry, I don't understand this concept. Do you, guys. Do you sleep, Nick? I suspect not. <laughs> I went for a, I went for a nap. Um, uh, are you talking about just not getting up when your alarm goes off, or are you talking about it's specifically when you have a nap, not like in the morning, but in, mm. for instance, you have your um, like a post lunch nap. And then you just stay, you just stay under for slightly too long. When you, yeah. when you awake, you're in, it's almost agony. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? You're just, just, you've probably had a couple of extremely vivid dreams and everything's very sort of. Um, it doesn't really feel like you're ever going to get back to normal again. I think it feels like you're slightly at uh, odds with the world. I think you're overthinking this guys. Um, <laughs> one, of those things happen, one of those things that happens two or three times a day that you think, oh gosh, is this permanent? Uh, you know, <laughs> Um, what I, what I, panic all the day. What I would say in terms of napping is I've discovered, not discovered, I obviously knew it was always there, but if I was to have a nap right in the afternoon, I guess it's because of lockdown where it doesn't really matter what you do with your day. Um, and so rather than set like a, a, an alarm for like, oh, right, I've got to get up at 3.30 and then it's 10 past three and you're thinking, well, I've only got 20 minutes nap now, you know, what I've discovered is if I just like when I'm about to have a nap, I go in, onto timer instead of alarm, I can go, I want a nap for 40 minutes and I'll press nap. Right. And then in 40 minutes, time, it doesn't matter what time of day it is. It, it, all it matters is that I've shut my eyes for 40 minutes. Do you mm. see? What, what you need is, and maybe this technology exists, is for the 40 minutes to start at the moment you actually fall asleep rather than setting a timer for 40 minutes and then lie there for 12 minutes. But also, maybe we, maybe we, maybe we have overthought this now. I wonder. But no. Yeah, I, it, no. Okay. No. We're actually. This is where. This is. This is where. This is where billionaires are born. Right. 
like getting their napping time correctly. Well, there must mm. be some way of... Pro- well, you know there's that app that you can get that monitors deep sleep. Yes. Where, where it, it records... Basically, it sort of like runs in the background and you fall asleep and you're asleep for eight hours and it records you asleep. But then if you talk in the night then it kind of like uh, just like a supercut of all of the times you say stuff in the night and then you can listen back to it the next day. And is it useful things? I mean, is it sort of already laying kind of you get to the root of your madness? <laughs> uh, no, but it does sort of like, it's, it, it does it's, indicate... It's foolish, isn't it? I must get milk in the, in the morning. Must... It's more like that. I'm oh, not sure it is like that. I, I s- set up a direct debit for the council tax tomorrow or just pay <laughs> one month's worth. And it's those sorts of things that just sort of dribble out usefully. Mm. Apparently there's a TED Talk. Taika Waititi does a TED Talk that's about power napping. I haven't checked this, but my wife said yesterday that this is the case. And he gives, it's, it's really a talk about creativity, but it's mainly about power napping. I worry sometimes that a lot of my dreams, that when I remember them, they're quite kitchen sink. They're not terribly, like, vivid. You'd want them to be kind of high fantasy, but often they're quite kind of kitchen sink realism. Yeah, and I think yeah, that's not that's not ideal. I can I can have this. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so if you dream something achievable, it's not, oh, I had that amazing dream where something, oh, no, I'll never win an Oscar or whatever. Where it's like, oh, I had an amazing dream where, um, yeah, I got some new um, new tyres for my bike. <laughs> whatever. Like, oh, I could do that, couldn't I? Yes, it's been- Yes, yeah, achievable uh, dreams. Yes, achievable dreams. Modest ambitions. Sure. Or when you have like a conversation. Title, modest ambitions. Modest ambitions. <laughs> well, there you go. Tour show, wouldn't it? Modest ambitions. I always thought, I always thought I would like to do a tour show that's just called More of the Same. And I, you know, <laughs> but then why not? The, the sort of thing you're expecting. Yeah. Uh, it's it's that, honest. That, that is, I mean... <laughs> That is what you're doing, unless you're a sort of chronic reinventor. I can't think of any chronic reinventors that we know. Um, yeah. But I think that's difficult in in stand up, especially to to. I kind of know what I do, but I find it very difficult to reach what I do. I think when you can do that is when you've nailed it. I think when you can go, I always kind of know vaguely what it is that I'm trying to do, and some things I write, I go, that doesn't sound like something I would do. And then I'm always oh, reaching to do something that that is what I would do. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. Or do you think if you can if you can describe or if what you do can be easily described, then it's sort of finished. Maybe. I think other people can describe it better to me than oh, I yeah. can. I think I think that would be the same of all people. Like I would right. be able to describe what both of you do if asked. Where if someone said, you know, someone's cutting a hand and go, what, what is it then that you do? I always say, I just sort of um, moan about things in a posh voice, really. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, but I think uh, that that's a good example. You can't think of anything, and you go, "I've done this thing about um, panini irons," and they're like, "What?" <laughs> you know, the way that, you know, people sometimes use panini irons to warm croissants, and I don't think they should. And of course, it sounds when it's not in the context of the lights all pointing the right way and it being part of a structured thing. It sounds like that you can't actually be describing something you really do a job because, like, so people go into a theatre and you describe the fact that it irritates you that sometimes croissants get painted on a panini. I'm not sure. And then, it, and then, yeah, then, then the whole thing's absolutely broken, isn't it? <laughs> but then that's sort of applicable for to um, you know uh, careers and life and stuff like that. Whereas if you were to say, "Are you happy with you know what you've done?" and you go, "There's so much I didn't do," but that's yeah. all in your head, and it's for other people to to go. Oh, no, you did this, 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 and this, and I mean, you'll think it's fantastic. Or, or it's for other people to say, yes, you have not fulfilled your potential. 
<laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, speaking of fulfilling stuff and ticking stuff off, you've got a you've got. In answer to your question, I'm fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you've uh, you've got your book uh, out called History, uh, which came out uh, yesterday on the on Thursday, the nineteenth of August, which is tomorrow. Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, when did you write it? Um, I can't honestly tell you when I started it, but I finished it during I think the first lockdown. But by that point, I, I, I was meant to have delivered it two Christmases ago. Oh, wow. And then I, I would get... E- I, I mean, I, wouldn't, I don't mean easily distracted, as in I was sitting home writing a book and then, you know, the doorbell rang and the next thing I knew I was on a sort of mercy dash. Um, I, uh, but I would, you know, maybe doing another thing or going and doing a, a job or whatever. And also a, occasionally, you know, a, like a book is so long without being simplistic about it you have to sort of break it down into incremental parts because if you, if you're like, oh, right, it's this, okay, I've got to write a new 90,000 word version of that thing, then it becomes a terrible panic. But you think I ought to sit down and do, you know, a bit like your approach to napping. Look, I suppose you're like, well, I should do, I should do an hour and a half on it or whatever. Uh, so it, 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 I don't know, three or four years, maybe it took to write. Wow. But um, when you say you've got to write a new 90,000, are you talking about a second draft? Oh, sorry. Do I? Surely I don't need to introduce this concept to you. The, um, the, uh, yeah, that's exactly what I mean. So for instance, I had, at one point I'd written a draft and then, and I can't remember when this was, but I know it must have been when I, was, I did a series called, um, what was it called, Bad Moves that I did with Jack D. And I remember during the first series of that going and saying to Manjin the Verk, I'm like, oh, I just, I've just finished a draft of that. So that would, I mean, it must be three or four years ago or whatever. And then you get some notes back and they can you just do a slightly different thing and then you do it again. And there was one point, there was a really long gap because at one point I got an email from the editor that said, I looked at it on my phone and there was one very paragraph full of praise. And I thought, oh, that's nice. And there was another paragraph that seemed very flattering. And then the third paragraph began with the word but. And I went, oh, God. And I just shut down the email <laughs> uh, out of just fear because I thought, oh, no, I don't, I'm not sure I can. I'm not sure he's, he's, he's softened me up too much with the first two. And I genuinely don't think I went back and read that email for a month. That's and, a shit sandwich, isn't it? Uh, well, it's the opposite, isn't it? It's like... Um, but it's like they've got the sandwich wrong. It's two pieces of bread yeah. rested on a plate of shit. Well, except I haven't gone back. There might be more bread at the end. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. that's why I was sort of saying it was a shit sandwich. But, you know, you brought I me to task. You sandwich until you completely finished it. Yeah, uh, sure. You know... Uh, Obviously, that would be a hard way to live your life if you're sort of halfway through a thing. You think, oh, why have I bought prawns on a Monday? And you've been two thousand of fans going, this is absolutely disgusting. That's a good then, album title. Go, oh, quite, quite a nice bit of butter in that. Uh, that's the sort of thing you go, yeah. Prawns on a Monday. Prawns on a Monday is a good memoir title. Yeah. A Life, a life in Sandwiches. Um, but yes, you were half, halfway through this shit sandwich. So, and then I put it. So then I, and then I eventually, months later, went back and actually it was full of very constructive advice. But it was about just getting time stretched out to think, oh, how do I do this? Because I've not, I've not only been doing that, I suppose. So it did take a while. And then when it got to the first lockdown, I thought, oh, I could be cracking on with something, couldn't I? But to go back to that ninety thousand words, um, yes, you don't write a draft and then you start from scratch again surely you're like no, fixing no, no. you are you're amending it but it's a big the yeah. thought of moving things around and panicking in your head where's that gone 
because also because what I do I don't have um, a pin board with index cards on it that I could move things around. I instead I just sort of uh, scrunch up my head and kind of think about it, and that's and what I should do is get the pin board. Yeah, um, and that would save that. Whereas in fact I start thinking, oh no, hang on a minute. Oh no, but if I move that, that bit has to happen in August '97 because it's got that song in it. And if I move, you know, so then I, I start panicking. But ultimately, I the experience is a, is a sort of exciting one. But run, run, writing is a bit like running. Uh, in I don't, I don't do as much as I should. Uh, it, it, it's a bit like running in the sense that it's nice to have done it. It's like it's a more enjoyable feeling than the doing of it. Yeah, that's like everything, though, isn't it? With work you, and things. Well, listen, do you like the middle of a gig or do you like the end of a gig? Uh, in, I, there were times when I was on a, on the, on the, when I was doing the comedy clubs where, you know, you'd see that red light come on at 18 or 90 minutes and, you know, the, just the joy of having hit the end, <laughs> even if it was going well for whatever reason, because it, <laughs> I, 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 there's so much sort of adrenaline or whatever sometimes in those and it, you think... Uh, I, it's 20, 20 minutes, you know, if it's miserable, you know, you can handle the 20 minutes of it. But sometimes I think it's going really well. 20 minutes of something going really well also seems enough, doesn't it? Otherwise, it's just too, you know, it's like eating a big a big pudding that you'd need a nap after. And that's why people that we know go mad because they don't go, oh, this is good. Or you can stop when something's going well. You don't have to wait for it to be going badly. <laughs> oh, I seem to have rung all the laughs out of this room. I'll just go off now. No, no. But that <laughs> never happens either. You ring all the laughs out of the room, and then you think, "How much longer can I keep going before I get them back again?" Oh, I think, I, how long are these gigs? Are you, are you going in these sort of cycles? No one can get you off it. Fits at all. It's just you. Have, having once stood behind the Apollo sign for forty-five minutes, uh, when told that uh, I, I now, <laughs> I've become uh, anxious about other people overrunning. Um, so I, I never want to <laughs> ever want to be in that situation again. <laughs> uh, he said, "No, be there." He's doing. He's either doing twelve and a half or twenty-five. So stand there, stand stand behind the sign at twelve and a half, and then he and then there was another thirty-two and a half minutes or whatever it was of me standing on this <laughs> square waiting for them to finish. And I never I never want to be in that situation again or put somebody else in that situation. Sure, because that's, that's I think we can agree that's not good. No, and that's time no. you'll never ever get that time back. No, just... and even now I can't believe I coped. What could I possibly have done? <laughs> and then you went on and did the gig. No, I left the building. No, I did. I, I yes, I went on and did the gig. But also, there when you come up, they say walk in a straight line because there's so much smoke. I think. Right. Uh, and now after that, you've waited and waited and waited, and the first thing you're like, oh, it's happened. And the first thing is a complete sense of loss because uh, you, you can't. You're just suddenly like, oh no, have I got, have I walked to the straight line? You're thinking, and then you sort of think, I need to wait for the smoke to clear to know if I've done, if I've done this right. So, but, so actually, by the time you get to the microphone and grab it, there is a, there is an enormous sense of relief. Maybe that's one of those gigs that one's more relieved to start than to finish. Well, uh, I, I, while you're saying that, I was just trying to remember because I, I feel like I can relate to that, but I was trying to pinpoint how I could relate to that. And it's from doing eight out of ten cats does countdown. And when you do mm-hmm. dictionary corner and you're sat at the side in dictionary corner, you've got like, well, you've got your little bells and whistles to kind of like do throughout the show. 
but they're generally new material that you haven't tested and you're sat there along with everyone else but it takes about 45 minutes for them to get to you and then when they get to you they're like yeah now do your bit and you're like i haven't said anything out loud in 45 minutes so it's just <laughs> like and then you have to go on and do it um I, I, I've, I've known you for several years, uh, but um, I always remember the times that I've done eight out of ten cats and you've been there. I can't remember if it's two or one, but you always laugh so much on those panel shows. I think that you're one of the best contestants when it comes to that. There's always someone that's very encouraging in the room and it's you. Now you've gone silent I, as if I've greatly <laughs> offended. You know what, I <laughs> I, I just had that net, that, that um, Zoom insist that my internet is unstable, despite the thousands of pounds I seem to have sunk into trying to get Wi-Fi throughout the house. Well, we're just saying that you're very good at, uh, at 8 out of 10 cats. You provide content in terms of the stuff that you say, but also I've always thought that you're very, um, you're, you're very generous, but then when you see the edit, uh, you, everyone always cuts to you laughing at people so you you managed to double your screen time <laughs> i yeah there is that that i didn't realize that was happening but richard osman said to me yeah it's so useful for the uh, for the edit having someone that sits there just sort of chuntering away the, the car, but also partly i am enjoying it i think you're hearing loads of things for the first time yeah and partly there's the relief that you're not speaking <laughs> Do you know, I mean, have you ever been on um, just, a, just a minute? You're sort of going along and then you buzz in because someone makes a mistake. You think, oh, there we go. And then they go, right, it's your turn. You think, oh, oh no. <laughs> well, you know, I like the bit when you say, describe what's, what's wrong with someone else's talking, but not the bit when you have to do it yourself. But on that as well, that programme, you know, there's a lot of people being really funny. And the thing about, although it's, as you're saying, you're sitting there for 45 minutes where you, you know, it's like, and they say go without saying ready, set. The... You know, people are doing like in Dictionary Corner, doing like big set pieces or whatever. So seeing you singing Susie, Don't Fall in Love with Me or whatever, mm. I, it's a sort of glorious sight. Or, or Holly Walsh doing the Venn diagrams or, um, you know, Sam Simmons doing stuff. There's suddenly like, you think, at last someone's doing a bit because we've all just been <laughs> talking in a maniacal fashion up until and i think there is a little bit of relief thinking oh good there's like five minutes where i'm not responsible for any of this yeah there's a bit his here comes a bit yeah. um although obviously yeah i mean you know i was very lucky in that i nearly always sat next to sean on mm. um eight out of ten cats who has uh is now no no he's no longer with us um and I, you know, I just, he was someone that you would sit next to and just think, I don't know how he does it. You know, you might as well have been sitting next to a magician mm. because he had a kind of, a, a sort extraordinary amount of creativity, but also a creativity not, not like anybody else's. You'd sort of think, how have you got there? Or how, I'd love to watch you have that idea. Mm. Or, you know, hear you have it out loud. You know, a really incredible man. Um, and he would just do, you know, he'd just do extraordinary, extraordinary things. And you think, how on earth have you looked at something or read something and thought that there's funny in this and, and that's yeah. what it is. So that's, so, um, it's very sad. Yeah. It's, it's when you talk, it's funny when I was talking before about having mundane dreams, but often his comedy, I think, was about quite mundane things. And yet it was world building. You really got a sense of from a line where he's from 
who he is. Yeah. And it's 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 world building in that sort of almost fictional sense, but with like a few lines of I know who you are and where you're from and where you well, belong. Letting you into his head, isn't it? It's like sort mm. of the numbskulls or something. That, that yeah. amazing movie. There's a lovely one, amazing one when he describes how he got each of the different wrinkles on his forehead. <laughs> and like one of them, is, one of them is just looking for car keys or whatever. <laughs> or there's a very funny, very funny thing I used to love about it. Like him, really, you know, needing a new pillow, but you only remember last, the last thing you do and you get into bed. Oh, I'm all right, Jay. I've done everything I needed to do. Oh, no, I need to buy a new pillow. <laughs> <laughs> really really brilliant so um yeah i was very um very sorry to hear that news uh he's someone who was really nice to me and i never i didn't always know why i suppose uh but i i would have there was a oddly comedically there was a sort of was strangely simpatico and i would enjoy going off on sort of weird i'd be amazed if i suggested something and he'd go with it there's one when i made him eat loads of I can't remember some sort of um, seafood or something. And he was like, and he was like oh, okay, keep doing that. That's funny. And it was, it was kind of <laughs> reckless after a while. But um, yeah, that is, you know, I mean, you must have, like me, some of by the time he started, he was already very sort of well established and someone that had mm-hmm. incredible ability, really. So uh, yeah, it would be. I don't know what it'd be like going on that. For instance, that show again, anyway. But um, I I remember that uh, the the last time I did it was November or early December last year. And um, for a start, when you do eight out of 10 cats, I think Jimmy is very kind of uh, generous. And he, uh, if you haven't said anything in a while, he'll make sure it comes over to you uh, so that it's not completely a free for all. And he'll kind of like laugh if, if he finds you funny um and sean i think is sort of um harder to please but in sort of a good way um where if you got a laugh from him then it really didn't matter if anyone else was laughing yeah. uh, especially in front of an audience it was like the audience wouldn't necessarily go for my stuff and if you didn't do a good job you know you didn't look over in sean's direction but if you felt like if you felt brave enough you'd look over at sean and he would sort of like give you a nod or like a, a wink or something like that and let you know that you'd done a good job so if you could make him laugh then it meant more than anything else yeah. But the last time I did it, the last time I did it in November, I just remember, because we'd all been in lockdown for a year, I just remember sitting there and there was sort of Jimmy Carr and John Richardson and Sarah Pascoe was on and um, and Sean Locke was there. And um, I just remember feeling so incredibly lucky that I've been, this is my job, I'm getting paid to be here. But I'm getting to see all of these people do new material. And with Sean, it was kind of like he would say something um, and you knew it was written because he's got a prop that someone has made for him. <laughs> but he yeah. would also make it sound like he literally just was coming up with it just then. And I know, and I know that's sort of our job. Our job is to think of a funny idea, write it down and then work out a way to convey it to the audience like it's just occurring to us. Uh, but it was literally some of the times his ideas were so kind of like silly or lightweight or weird that you'd think, why would you write that down? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think you're right. That's a, I mean, it's a, it's a acting skill, isn't it? People, you know, people doing Shakespeare or whatever taught, you know, you've got to remember you're saying these lines for the first time and you're thinking on the line and that sort of thing. 
And it's like that's that's sort of exactly what he's doing. I remember sitting next to him when uh, Ivan Brackenbury was <laughs> hospital <laughs> doing it. <laughs> he did. If I can remember, uh, well, it'll be on. It'll be on the internet. But it's very very funny joke about um, about sending photographs of his perineum to people. <laughs> really, it's, it, look it up. But it it is it is funny. And I was, as you would expect, sort of beside myself. And Sean just leant over and just went, oh, proper joke, that. Proper joke. <laughs> what, what a beautiful compliment that is. That's not, that, you know, that is quite something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just to sort of um, not wrap it up, but to, the, the other thing about him was, you know, I've been doing eight out of ten cats and then countdown for about ten years, on and off obviously um and whenever i get into a taxi or if you ever you're at a wedding or whatever it is people so many people watch eight out of ten cats and countdown and uh it's generally like the the second most mentioned thing to me uh and and people say oh they'll say something about susie dan and you go sure and then they'll say what's sean like and it's just uh, uh, taxi drivers, mainly taxi drivers, uh, when you're in the back of a taxi, they'll always ask you about Sean. But when you're like in a bar or at a wedding or whatever it is, some people would always ask about Sean. And so uh, just everybody, everybody loved him. And he's such a weird sort of surreal, laid back, grumpy uncle, kind of just everyone seems to sort of like really love him. And that's the that's the impression I got from mm-hmm. bumping into people in uh, the general public. Yeah, I think so. He's, you know, they're also that, that that slight enigma of it because what you've got there is a guy that seems like a, you know, a regular bloke, you know, a bloke's bloke, and yet what he comes out with is so sort of so sort of thoughtful and kind of um, esoteric, really. Mm. Uh, and that, you know, that's something people are like. What is that guy like? How could that? How 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 has this guy happened? Uh, in a way, so yeah. No, I uh, think you have to go to him, don't you? There's a sort of thing where he doesn't care. He doesn't yeah. care whether you're, but it makes you want to go to him more. I think because he's like, a, he's sort of magnetic, and he doesn't, he doesn't appear to need anything from his audience. And no. yet the audience leans in and goes, uh, "What is it? What are you? What are you here to tell us?" Uh, yeah, there's exactly that, and also just about, you know. Being in a studio with him and him doing his, you know, being at work with him, it's great. But also, like, being in a bar with him at three or four in the morning, it's also <laughs> astonishing, astonishing experience. Uh, yeah, great, great fun, an amazing man, brilliant man. Yeah. Um, okay, so tell us, t- tell us about your book. Right. Um, <laughs> I. Uh, it is. It is a. It's a novel, right? And it is about a teacher. He's called Clive, Clive Hapgood. And uh, he is, he's basically got himself into a situation where he's not happy at work and he's not happy necessarily at home. And it's all sort of his own doing, different things bidding into each other. And then it's how he responds to this, essentially. You know, he has a job at a kind of private school, which ought to be a sort of luxury posting, I suppose, but he doesn't enjoy it or manages to enjoy the wrong people at the right time so he's kind of trapped uh in this world and i suppose it's it's a sort of gentle descent into his <laughs> his madness 
and his attempts to solve it be. But I, I hope it's a kind of, in the way, sort of old-fashioned comic novel. That's what I'm, you know, I'm not, it's not me trying to be sort of Martin Amis or, um, you know, the bone clocks or something. You know, it's, um, it's the sort of thing you'd expect. <laughs> I was trying to place it because I thought it was really interesting reading it because it's I was trying to think where it fits in with other fiction and other things I've seen and like anything when you read anything or watch a film or anything I almost you you automatically compare it with other things and I really struggled to place where I'd put it and it's just I guess it's a character study it's kind of like a it feels kind of like a comic novel but it's also a bit like um when you watch taxi driver and you think what on earth are you doing there's a bit of that to it as well um yeah. it and um well, and i was thinking what were you reading or what were you thinking about when you're writing it what would you compare it to well i've i mean because i wrote it over ended up like dipping in and out of it for a long time but but i will you know i think of things that must have had an impact on what i was thinking about when i wrote it or whatever i'm i really like jonathan coe um read a lot of his novels uh i i was in the play day of the death of joe egg at the glasgow citizens about well, nearly a decade ago now but that had a very sort of profound impact on me really and how how you sort of see home life sometimes um and i i mean you know i i think those those those, those sort of comic novelists i suppose i loved I still love even even in war, like decline and fall is, and I suppose you know set in a school environment or, you know, lucky Jim or whatever. There's a, do you know there's a, there's a length of book that I think is sort of perfect, which is those old fashioned penguins you can definitely fit in the outside. <laughs> yeah, right. Proper coat. Yeah. That's yeah. The length that a book should be, and if they go, oh, great news, we're bringing that in an airport edition. What's that? It's the really big one. No, no, that's quite the wrong size for a book. Uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> a bit about that, and I, you know. Kingsley Amis and things like that, or you know, have, have you ever read the Sandcastle by Iris Murdoch? Lots of things like that when you just need to be people. Wet. They, 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 the thing about a novel that you can't do elsewhere, I think sometimes is just the sheer ex amount of introspection. Somebody can think for two pages in a novel. Yeah, they can be. In, they can lower themselves into a bath and have a good old think. Yeah. Whereas if someone's in a bath for more than six seconds in a sitcom, you're thinking, oh no. Who's going to come through the door? Whatever right. it might, but you can actually just occasionally just sort of settle into a into a place where your mind can run a bit, you know, not wild, but where. Well, when you say you think it's the kind of book that that you know you'd probably expect you to write, or this is kind of what the kind of thing you'd expect. I think it it feels almost that I could imagine you playing the main character, but I don't feel like that's you at all really right oh, well thank you that is yeah i that the, the real fear about writing a novel i was talking to victoria hislop and i was saying she's written lots of very successful novels and she says oh people always ask if it's based they always just assume that everything is based on your life particularly mm -hmm. any sex scenes people always assume it's all based entirely on a thing and that so that that becomes a sort of paranoid you know after something's written you're like oh, is that a bit like oh whatever you, you've got to sort of get that entirely out of your head but for, as part of the kind of uh process um you know i found imagining people playing these characters quite a nice way to make them 3d in my head mm -hmm. so there's things and also if you get someone into a sort of horrific situation or a sticky situation 
you think, oh, no, that's that's poor behaviour. But then you think, oh, it'd be quite fun to play someone who gets himself into that situation. So there'd mm. be people I would picture, I, you know, in a way, you know, the, the settings of the book are quite familiar. I live in a small town. I'm familiar with about five or six sort of, of these kind of market towns all around the country or whatever. And I went to a school like that. And I suppose I've been 38. Oh, that must have been when I started the novel. When I, I must have been, the, I was the same age as the character in the novel when I started it. So that's how it worked out. Um, <laughs> And those sorts of things, you know. So I would there's a headmaster who's who 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 goes on sort of longish speeches that no one's particularly anxious to hear. And I kind of in my head to give him that kind of 3D stuff. I imagined him being, you know, like Alex McQueen. I'm very good friends with who played in um, the thick of it. Or is he Neil? I've not seen it, but it's in between us. He plays Neil's dad, I think. Yeah, he's one of the dads, I think. But yeah, I'm not terribly familiar with it either. Several times I've had to hold phones for people to take photographs of, of him. Because they're <laughs> nice he's Neil's, Neil's dad. Um, but and you sort of picture him playing that role or whatever, or just hearing the words come out of someone's mouth. Which is a bit like when I wrote this thing in and out of the kitchen on Radio 4, right? the first series I found quite difficult to write. And the second, but then once it, because it didn't have a cast, and then once it had like a cast, then you can hear, there was a guy called Philip Fox who was in it, who I absolutely loved writing for he's the estate agent that sells alan partridge's shows alan partridge around the house in i'm alan partridge right uh, and i he's an amazing actor and he was playing a character completely unlike him but once and i was writing and i could imagine these words then coming out of his mouth i it, it made the it, it made it really enjoyable so there was an element of that in my head just sort of slightly casting parts to see oh, well, that, that's because that's how i felt it felt like i could picture you as the character but i was going that isn't like you though that doesn't feel like you. And no, he's sort of, he's kind of, he's not unlikable, but he's also doing things all the time that you're, you have no sympathy for him. <laughs> You've got yeah. very little sympathy for him. It's just like, I, I found myself agreeing with his wife all the time going, yeah, but she's right. And yeah. You can't see it. Yeah, and it's yeah. that kind of, it feels like it's weird. You're in his head, but it's, and you're listening to his arguments but you're always going, but I think you're wrong. I don't yeah. think you're right. He's absolutely wrong. And I suppose in a way that's part of this. That's again, with the, you, you get in your writing it, you get to a certain point and then you think, oh, what would be the, what would be the right response to this? And you work it out and think, right, well, let's not do that then. Mm. <laughs> what would be the wrong response here? Where would this <laughs> go or whatever? I remember someone pointing out to me that you, you watch Kirby Enthusiasm, and about three minutes into every episode, he makes an enormous mistake that you would never make. Mm. And that's, and you could watch the rest of the episode going, well, this is all because you did that thing that made no sense in The Dentist. Or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so is you there some... Kind of, sort of make, finesse those so it's less jerky. Is there some sort of wish fulfillment then, or kind of uh, where you're, where you're kind of like seeing scenarios out on paper where it's safe? Uh, oh, well, I, you know, I'd love to behave like this myself, but I wouldn't have the the goal. Yeah. No, I don't think so because just because of the sort of world he occupies or whatever, he's already you you already don't quite want to be in the situation that he's in. Anyway, I suppose. So it's not, you know, I guess if you wrote like an action novel or a sort of amazing thriller or, you know, you know, if you, like a sort of John le Carré novel or whatever, and you write about some, you know, you write, you know, sort of 
like the Tom Hiddleston character in The Night Manager, or whatever you might. That, that, that I thought would be a kind of, sort of wish fulfillment. I'd love to be that guy, the guy that right. can, can fight anyone and sleep with all the ladies. But a man that goes and has a sort of, you know, panic attack whilst filling up the car with the wrong sort of fuel or whatever. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's not wish fulfillment. Sure. Uh, it is slightly close to an instance in my own life. The day we, we moved, I live in Wales and South Wales, and the day we moved, it was all going very smoothly. And then just on the outskirts of London, I filled the, uh, the car up with the wrong sort of, um, I filled the diesel car up entirely with petrol. And then, um, and I only realised right at the end when I put, to put the pump back that I was holding the wrong one. And I don't know what the face was that I pulled when I did it, but I, I only, I'd only, or the, the pose that I struck, but I'd only been holding that pose, which may have been my head in my hands, or I may have been sort of imploring the heavens. But whatever it was I did, it was only 30 seconds for the man from the garage went, have you put the wrong fuel in by any chance? So he must have seen this so many times. Yeah. Not only did he ask that question, he was holding the car for the man you need to ring who brings the van that comes mm-hmm. it all out again. And you, um, but anyway, that, yeah, there's, a, there's, a, there's an incident of that happening in the book for, for instance. <laughs> But that's not that's not wishful fulfillment. That's trying to monetize on one's uh, pre- previous errors. Why why is it set in 1998? Because I kept thinking, oh, this is something. Almost trying to predict something. Like, what's the event oh, that's going to make it? Uh, actually, in in a way, that that is when I was finishing up at a school like that. I suppose. So right. I could have it. I could know with a non-research way that that's sort of what things were like. But also, I thought the idea of plotting something in a kind of school environment now, where people have mobile phones and emails and can communicate with each other all the time, you know, struck me as being completely impossible. I know people do. I know, like, sort of Jed Mercurio writes amazing things where people are continually getting text messages and things like that. I simply couldn't understand how you could plot something in the modern world. Well, if you want to get information to somebody, you get it to them immediately. I've just realised I've done that thing, though, where it just hasn't occurred to me because I guess I don't have kids or I don't... In my head, it's like, but schools are like this now. And Mm. of course they're not. Of course they're not. Yeah, it's just that I guess when people talk about their kids' homework being delivered by email or something, I'm like, what? How does yeah. that? It's all notes and it's this sort of weird. There's much more of a, I guess, a distance between school life and home life. Whereas now, I guess, it's very intruding by, you know, well, you can't get away with that stuff now, I guess. There's I a think difference. now, like teachers, the amount of interaction that is expected in a school like that, certainly, but the amount of interaction expected between teachers and parents, you know, people getting drunk parents, haranguing them on email at sort of 11 o'clock at night saying, little Timmy deserves better than this or whatever. It must be absolutely, absolutely <laughs> awful. And, uh, you know, what on earth am I paying for? How on earth has he only got 67% when it's cost, you know, that's, that's only 50, 500 pounds a percentage mark or whatever. Uh, and that, that, that seemed to me to be sort of impossible to, to imagine that world. So I thought it needs to be in the world that I know. Yeah. Or... Either I can't see how you plot it, or I would have to research it. Uh, you know, let's let's go with the first one. Right. Yeah, just kept thinking like there must be a thing I'm forgetting of some sort of world event that's gonna change everything happening, and almost waiting for it. And it's kind of subtle that it is set in 1998. You just get these little touchstones that you go, it's right, okay. It's... Some sort of new labour there, and there, the princess Diana. Uh, 
Yeah, there's a few little things there, but again, and a little bit of the music thing, isn't there? There's a sort of quite longer section of what is it? Okay, I can't remember what album it mm. is now. What Okay Computer would sound like the first time you'd heard it if you'd never heard any of that sort of music before. Yeah. Like, but then if it was not... head feel as if it's filled with smoke. You know? <laughs> if it, but then and if it was '99, then you're so close to the Millennium Bug, and then it all becomes exactly. about that. Everyone would be terrified throughout the entire. The entire book would just be people panicking, panicking, wouldn't it? Going, well, of course, my digital watch works this week, but it's not going to work this week. You know, we're going to have to get a new video recorder. Uh, The whole thing's going to break. And have you you ever spent any time as a teacher at all? I I thought that kind of staff room stuff was kind of very vivid. And you have that kind of coffee, coffee cigarette smell that was always like glimpsed. Staff rooms are always a thing that you'd kind of be a bit about, trying to have a peek inside. There was a kind of, uh, I went to school between the age of 9, 13, where I can sort of picture even now what the, the, the common room, the staff common room, you know, you might go to the door to get a message to someone or something and what it all sort of looked like. And I, I suppose visually that would have been in my head. Or when I was at my senior school, you know, you had to go, if you wanted to get a message to a teacher, you had to go and uh, wait outside this place, the sort of refectory, and they'd be in this room above. And you'd wait and you'd give a message to someone and they'd put it on a clipboard and you'd wait 20 minutes and someone would come out and say, what is it? Oh, no, not really. Or whatever. And I used to think, what goes on up there? They all go up there. It must be so exciting. And I remember <laughs> someone saying, apparently there's a special room where teachers can smoke up there. And I thought, what is it? And I went, I ended up going back and doing a sort of thing to do with the theatre there. And they said, oh, well, we might as well, we need, to, you know, we had a chat before the, the event and they went, oh, we might as well do it in the staff room. I remember thinking, What's it going to be like? It's a normal room. I thought there's not even space. How's this? This is why isn't this more exciting? Why isn't this got sort of ancient hieroglyphics on the walls and you know sort of strange thing? Why aren't there sort of a, isn't, why isn't there illegal weaponry on the wall or any, any of these? <laughs> but um, I'm just going to mute and. He's muting and coughing, just so the listeners at home know what's happened there. Um, I just thought, well, yeah, you've got to be honest with people. Um, I, um, but I've no, I've never been a teacher. I, I was quite disastrously attempted to. I was asked to speak in a school assembly, and I don't, I don't think that went very well. Uh, but my brother was a teacher. My dad, in the book, actually, he used to teach in Uxbridge. The character, and my dad was a teacher in Uxbridge, in I assume the sixties, maybe. And uh, he, he even he even got shot in the leg by an air, an air rifle. A child brought an air rifle in and shot him in the leg while he was teaching. And another, but someone while been, while he was teaching, while he was teaching, yeah. And um, but someone had warned him. Oh, sir, you you know, or however people address teachers in those days. Uh, and so he was knew that it might happen. So he just sort of bore it and carried on because he thought that would be better than going, who's just shot me? You know, because that's so, very hard to, you know, you've got sometimes very little, he taught religious studies and I remember him saying, God, you could get, if you were looking for respect in the staff from you, you that was a mistake. Um, but then I never have really, but I used to just look at teachers and think, what do they do when they're not here? Is this the best bit of their life? Is this the worst bit of their life? What are they, you know, are they happy? You know, what I used to think, what they were kind of a mist, you know, you come in and you tell us this stuff before. When did you learn what you're telling us now? Have you just read it or have you, did you teach the same thing last year? Mm. What, you know, what? how do you do what you do? So it was a kind of, yeah. 
I always thought, I mean, it's it's not true at all that teachers, like for me, it must be a really hard job. And for me, the reward of that is finishing at 3.30 in the afternoon and um, having holiday time. And when you realise yeah. that that's not true, it sort of goes, well, then it's awful then. What an awful job. Yeah, yeah. there's nothing in the pro column at the moment <laughs> at all. Yes, there is an element to that, isn't there? No, I think it's incredibly uh, a hard work uh, pr- pr- presumably and you uh, but i suppose also an environment in which could, could become you know to feel unsupported in that environment or whatever must be pretty yeah must be pretty frightening you know there's that guy in it um what wally who just can't he just hates the end of break he just sits and he goes in the staff and he just thinks oh no not another lesson and i should i can't i'm sure we had teachers at school who like if you thought about it look back now you think oh fundamentally they were chronically shy Mm. And they were doing, they maybe taught whatever they taught because they liked that subject. Yeah. And maybe wanted people to be, in, they don't like teaching, they like maths. You know, whereas there's other people who like, they're not interested in maths, they really like telling other people what to do or whatever. There's so many, a bit like, a bit like spying or whatever. So someone like Guy Burgess, you know, he liked the game, that's what he liked. <laughs> he liked it. Whereas Kim Philby liked Russia, you know, and that's the, they, they're, they're Completely different, you know, completely different. Um, I don't know how many of my teachers worked in intelligence services. Presumably, I don't know, conservatively, somewhere close to 70%. Um, <laughs> but that is a completely different reason for doing it, isn't it? And you think, yeah. you know, it's like, in fact, in the way that in our job, there are some people that literally, they just clock off at the end of it. They're like, I don't, you know, they don't want to, no, I've got, I've got my money in the envelope. I'm getting on the bus. They're like, no, but don't you want to sort of come out and have fun and talk about? No, not really. You know, it's, it's, it's just a job for some people. For some people, it has that sort of kind of addictive vocational thing. Or people that like writing and then they have to get on stage and perform it. Yes, exactly. That's a very, yeah, that sort of thing. It's just, I have to do this because that's the only that's a way for people to hear my, my writing. I used to have a, a strange thing. Um, I've done a few plays and I, I the thing about it that I, not slightly struggle with is that the rehearsal bit is so good rehearsing a play is so amazing and then the play starts and that's how it's going to go so i remember talking to a sitcom with tom hollander and he was about to do this long run of a play and he was saying the thing about it is the play starts it's, it's sort of like a greyhound race really there's that moment you open the play it comes out of the traps and that is the result now you could be doing it for three weeks or you could be doing it for nine months but how it's going after two or three days is how it's going to go. Whereas, so that's an enormous, an enormous amount of pressure about that. And then, yeah, I guess that's that's, you know, after play, no one after play's been running for five months, and he goes, do you know what? I went back again actually, and it's terrific. I don't know what I was thinking, um, <sighs> you know that. And that, whereas when you're in the rehearsal room, sort of making it and building it, that's that bit's really exciting i think and i'm not saying that being in a play night other is you know it's an amazing thing but you think it's not it's a completely different thing being in a play when it's on and in a, in a run is like a completely different experience to rehearsing a play they're almost they're almost totally different jobs but that's a bit like um it's a bit like doing previews as a stand-up and discovering new bits and it being different every night and then when you land on the material it's like well this is the show and you're not discovering stuff anymore you're kind of doing the show or it's like going to ikea and going like oh i could buy any of these tables 
uh, and then you buy one and then it just becomes a table in your house <laughs> it's not the exciting moment when it's in the shop or you're getting it home that's the exciting yeah yes the moment you first got it you get an email or a phone call saying you've got an acting job well that's you know God, it would have to be an incredibly good job for at any point for it to feel better than it feels at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, that's the sort of the way the whole thing's inverted, uh, really. Well, talking of that then, how did you get the role in George Clooney's Monuments Men? Uh, I must have, I think I, I, think I did, I, I suspect I auditioned with two or three bigger parts. And then they'd go, oh, what about this one? And then, oh, what about this one? And, the, and then eventually I auditioned for the one I got, sort of by recording it on a, you know, doing a self-tape on a laptop somewhere. Um, but they, they think a thing like that comes sort of out of nowhere with, you know, the, putting the actors in something is the last thing that happens on a big thing like that. Mm-hmm. All of these other things, you know, the locations might have been settled months ago. And they're like, oh, yeah, in the last minute. And the whole thing is about someone's going to stand in the foreground there in a uniform and point to this thing that we've looked uh, who's going to do that bit? So you're kind of, you know, you're very late on in the, um, in, in, in the, in the. I keep using the word process, and I, I need to sort of look in the thesaurus and find a word that isn't word process. Because whenever someone else uses the word process, you think, here he goes, listen to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, but and welcome. I would welcome suggestions, alternatives. So, but in the, it becomes, you know. Something like that. You suddenly get an email or a phone call going, "Can you audition for this?" And you think, "Oh yes, okay." And then usually it doesn't happen, and sometimes it does. And then, and then it, it's a, there's a kind of surreal. So with that, for instance, it's only a, a film, maybe two scenes, something like that. But suddenly you're in a castle outside Berlin, and you're wearing Second World War uniform, and you've got a real gun in your holster. A gun so real, I was not allowed to touch it. So a man who had the gun would come up and say. Shortly before the take started, he would say, right, can you lift your hands over your head? He would put the gun in the holster and then go, right, don't touch it at any point. And I'll come and get it at the end of the take. You think, what, what even is I'm not even sure it's been shot. It's in a holster. <laughs> that makes it seem like it is fully loaded with actual bullets, yeah, that it's yeah. a safety thing. And also really has a very hair trigger or doesn't actually quite work <laughs> properly. It seems, odd, it seems an odd thing to put, through, put something through. Um, and then you have this sort of slightly weird... I remember on that getting really nervous entirely because it's Clooney, I suppose. And then after about 30, 40 minutes, I thought, I'm just, everyone's just at work. Hmm. They're all doing the thing that they do, and I'm here because they think that I can do this, so I, I just need to be able to do this. And that's sort of all it came down to, really. And uh, But I did, you know, I had real sort of panic because there's an element of you thinking, well, how can this happen? And then the next day or two days afterwards, you know, you're sort of queuing for an easy jet to go home again and you're back in the sort of real, real world. <laughs> so yeah. it was a quick job, do you think? I was there for about four days, probably. And I was quite lucky. They needed to do a costume fitting on the, like the Friday, but I wasn't filming till the Monday. So I got a bit of time to sort of sashay around Berlin. I did the most stupid thing. I was in Berlin and I went for Berlin, Berlin, Berlin. How did it? I, Berlin. I went, Berlin. There we go. That was it. We all know where I'm. I'm talking about Germany, yeah. I, I used to. I'm a big fan of John Le Carre, and I'd watch the um, Red, and then watch uh, like Tinker Tailor's Obvious Spy and Smiley's People, and I thought, oh yeah, so somewhere along this river is the bridge where at the end there is the handover. That's the I want where where like Carla and Smiley. That's amazing. I'm going to go and find this bridge. It's such an amazing. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah, I'd love to see that. So I just started walking along. 
the river, just walking and walking and walking and walking and walking. I walked for about two and a half hours thinking, I'm going to find this bridge and it's going to be so worth it. Uh, that would either have been an acceptable thing to do in 1997, but this was, you know, and then I suddenly thought, why don't I Google where the bridge is? What am I doing? So I got my phone out, got roaming on, Googled it, and it's, um, it's in Nottingham. Um, oh. But, you know, I was looking at ways to sort of kill the day. Uh, so that was, yeah, very school behaviour. But things like that, you know, yeah. an experience like that is kind of fun. And it's only, it's, you know, it's just a few days out of your life. But then, you know, I don't know, you might be sort of standing backstage waiting to host the Renault Truck Awards or whatever and thinking, oh, my life. And then you think, yeah, but I've also done that. That was good. And that lasted longer than this. So, you know, you need, you need these little things to hold on to. Have you hosted the Renault Truck Awards? Something like that, I'm sure. <laughs> it must have surely it must have um, we've talked to you for almost an hour now miles I go. no you, you can't go yet we're not allowed to go yet um but um just to say that your book history uh was out yesterday on the 19th of august tomorrow um uh, and it's available in hardback uh for 16 pounds 99 um it's called history Sixteen ninety nine. That's what it says on my piece of paper. Uh, history by Miles Jupp. Um, thank you for being on our show today, Miles. On two horses in a wagon, Mama, couldn't you? Actually, that's not outrageous. I mean, absolutely. Not... Uh, yeah, probably one and a half courses, I'd think. Sure, but we've no time for flights of fancy now. Right. Uh, for we need to. <laughs> the time for that was long ago, and now oh, we need to. Okay. I need to hand no, you I'm over. Getting going now. Stop it! <laughs> now I need to hand you over to the very incapable hands of Nathaniel Metcalf, who is going to play uh, the internationally famous game Better or Worse uh, with Miles Chapp. So, Nathaniel, take it away. Okay, Miles, this game is called Better or Worse, and you have to say whether the next person is better or worse than the person before, based on my opinions to score points. Oh, so I'm guessing your opinions. Exactly. Great. Exactly. So, beginning with Jack Nicholson. Is Keith Richards better or worse than Jack Nicholson? Worse. Yeah, worse. Worse, correct. Keith Chegwin, better or worse than Keith Richards? I can't. Better. Better. I'm gonna say worse, but I don't yeah. I don't it's not a not a slight on Keith. I can't. You haven't got time for this in the sense. Keith Sutherland, better or worse than Keith Chegwin? Uh, better. 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 Donald Sutherland, better or worse than Keith Sutherland? Better. 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 Donald Duck, better or worse than Donald Sutherland? Better. Better. Worse. Oh, worse. Oh. Daffy Duck, better or worse than Donald Duck? Better. 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 Billy Idol, better or worse than Daffy Duck? I think entirely because better. of his work in The Wedding Singer, better. Worse. worse. Billy Crystal, better or worse than Billy better. Idol? Better. 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 Billy Bob Thornton. Better or worse than Billy Crystal? Worse. That's what yeah, I would worse. say. Worse. Billy Holiday. Better or worse than Billy Bob Thornton? Better. 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 
And what have we got there then? But the score is six. six. You got six. You got six miles. That's respectable. It means you're not quite as good as Helen Ledra with ten, Dame wow. Baptiste, Marina Sirtis with nine, Bats from Massive Wagons with eight. Uh, but you are as good as Jamie Adams, Carl Gass, and Izzy Sooty with six. And you're better than Sarah Gibbs, Laura Jean Marsh, and Steve Bajaya with five. So uh, yeah, you uh, a bang average there, Miles. Uh, thank <laughs> you. Bang average. Title. Bang average. <laughs> so, let me wrap up so thank you very much for being a guest on our show uh welcome to the clubhouse uh i've been nick helm this has been nathaniel Metcalf. we've been talking to mars jump it's goodbye from all of us goodbye 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 and uh have a lovely uh day uh, if we're not back in lockdown good uh, good day goodbye <laughs>